This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation. Gentex is a longtime supplier of electro-optical products for the global automotive, aerospace, and fire protection industries. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host. Today, I'm beyond excited to be joined by Selena Mika Wycheck, Chief Battery Technology Officer at Bay Area startup Lighten. I'm hard pressed to think of anyone in the auto industry, or maybe any industry, who possesses the knowledge and expertise around batteries that Selena holds. She was among the pioneers in the earliest days at Tesla and Panasonic. Before that, she was among the very first to investigate battery fires back in the day when batteries were primarily used in consumer electronic products. Whether it's evaluating the performance of a particular chemistry or weighing potential safety hazards or figuring out the best way to manufacture millions of cells, Selena knows just how arduous the challenge has been thus far and how massive it remains ahead in a widespread transition to electric vehicles. I'm going to cut right to the chase today. Without further ado, I'm pleased to bring you this conversation with Lighten Battery Chief, Selena Mikowajic. Selena, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Great to be here, Pete. You know, I'm really excited to have you here because I feel like you are the personification of this energy transition that is underway in a lot of ways. Uh, you started your career in the oil industry and and then moved over to the uh, EV and battery side of things. So maybe just to kick this off, I'm curious, take us back to that beginning. What were you doing in oil and, and what made you decide to make a big leap? Okay, so I'm officially old, okay? We're going to just specify that. Um, so, you know, when I was in, in school, I was finishing university in early 90s, right? Um, at that point, batteries were not a thing. I mean... We, none of us thought about batteries. I mean, laptops were pretty cool, but only for like the super rich or the top executives, right? All of us were plugging away on desktop computers and we considered ourselves lucky for that, right? Um, so, you know, this was, batteries weren't even on my radar. I was a mechanical engineer. Um, and uh, out of school, I got hired by Schlumberger to go into the field and work uh, wireline logging for them. And Schlumberger has this, you know, long history of doing this. They hire people right out of school. They teach them everything about the oil field, about logging, and they send them out in the field to work. Um, it was a tremendous boot camp for an engineer. You know, I'd had a great academic background. I was coming out of Caltech. I mean, I was geeky as all get out. And then, you know, wind up in the oil field, right? And it's very practical. <laughs> you're out on the rig floor. You're dealing with, you know, big, heavy things. And, um, you know, figuring out really how the world works and how things are put together. Um, so I did that for a while and it was a great learning experience. Um, but I also realized at that point that I wanted to do something more technical, right? The, the, the pathway there was that you worked in the field for a while and then you went into sales and so forth through the company. That wasn't my thing. Um, so I decided to go to graduate school and, um, having been in the oil industry for a while, I thought, oh, um, combustion sounds interesting. It's a, you know, offshoot sometimes from chemical engineering, but sometimes from mechanical engineering. 
um, you know, I, I kind of I've seen how hard it is to get petroleum out of the ground, how hard we work for that, how advanced that tech has to be to make that uh, make that possible. You know, maybe I should learn about how we burn that fuel and how we use it and, you know, to address some of the environmental issues that were very big at the time. At that point, everyone was talking about NOx emissions, right, among other things. So I went to graduate school and I studied combustion. Um, it was really interesting. Again, batteries were not a thing. Like this was the mid nineties, right? And if you think about it, Sony started to commercialize lithium ion cells in like 1993, right? And I was hitting graduate school at about 1990, about that same time, actually. Um, you know, this was again, not even on my radar. Um, I did did a bunch of time at graduate school, and then I got my first uh, technical job at Exponent, and I joined their thermal science combustion group, and I did fire investigations, okay, among other things. And um, somewhere in there, I got asked to look at you know the fire hazards associated with lithium ion batteries, which had just started to become a reality. People were starting to ship them for laptops, and uh, you know various high value things. And but you know, cell phones were still nickel metal hydride. No one was no one was using lithium ion for cell phone. But um, you know, this started to become a thing. And um uh, I kept getting more and more failure analyses to do. Uh, you know, people would send me their lap this laptop in a Ziploc bag going, Why'd the fire start? Right? Here's the here's the stuff, right? And you dig through the remains of a burned up laptop and you find the cells and you start looking at them and opening them and so forth and trying to understand how uh how the cell failed. Um, I did this for, I don't know, almost 10 years, I think. And I kind of became the world's expert on why lithium ion cells go boom. And, uh, it was very interesting. Um, in another world, you could have been an NTSB investigator, uh, had you oh, yeah. that investigation. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's what we did. Um, but you know, I, I, I thought a lot about the various failures I've been seeing. I've been kind of thinking about this deeply. Um, you know, it was an interesting area. Um, but it was kind of getting, you know, I was seeing the same sorts of failures over and over again as new manufacturers kind of got into this and repeated the mistakes of the first manufacturers. So it was getting, it was getting kind of like, okay, this again, right? And right about that time, uh, Tesla recruited me, right? And that's, that started getting interesting. Now I was on the cutting edge again, um, with, uh, Tesla and their cell manufacturers, um, and I started there as uh, running cell quality for them. And then I started doing more things with cells and a lot of the cell engineering uh, work. And that became really, really real very quickly, right? I started at Tesla before we ramped Model S. Um, and if and I remember correctly, you had to go and essentially tell them at that point, wait a minute, you you guys are off on the wrong start. You're doing this wrong. You have to kind of back up a few steps. Actually, that happened before when I was still consulting in the middle of consulting. And I remember this because I was pregnant with my son. And, uh, you know, I get this call of this little garage company down in San Carlos. You know, they want to they want to have a consultant come by and talk to them about, you know, cells and, and cell failures. So, you know, I kind of waddle my way down there. Right. You know, because I'm pregnant and uh you know, look at this garage and I see the the architecture that they have. I think this was around, it would have had to have been 2000, um, maybe 2005, late 2005. Um, and, you know, I, 
uh, see the architecture they have and uh, they've got these cells and they're all close packed together. And I say, wow, um, you know, you're going to burn a few cars to the ground. And they said, what? <laughs> you're kidding. I said, no. I said, you know, about one in a million of these cells will just catch fire. And no one really knows why they can't really, you know, they can affect the rates maybe a little, but that's kind of the average industry average. And they went, well, wait a minute. Uh, that would mean a lot of cars, right? Catch fire. How, how, you know, how do we stop it? I said, well, I don't, you know, you can work with the cell manufacturers, go get a good cell manufacturer, but even they can't resolve this. So I, uh, you know, told them this and then, um, and then I was very pregnant. I went on maternity, you know, my son was born. I went on maternity leave. So it would have been 2006 anyway. So yeah, so they they went back and they started looking at this stuff and they started doing all kinds of propagation resistance development, right? So they started spacing out cells and, you know, putting different materials between cells and doing a lot of testing, right? And I kind of, you know, I was involved. My child was born. I had, a, you know, a newborn and stuff. So I pretty much didn't think about it again uh, for quite a while. So it was only, it was 2012 when they recruited me again. By then they'd gone through the Roadster, Right. The Model S was really going. And, you know, I, I remember going down there and talking to them and I was thinking, wow, I don't know how this is going to go. Right. And, uh, and I meet, um, I meet their safety team and they, I think they told me that they had propagation resistance, that they'd worked on a bunch of this stuff and they, you know, they had this and I'm like, wow, they did this this is going to work. They're not going to burn cars to the ground. right? So let me ask you, so you said when you started out on, on cell phones and laptops back, back in the mm -hmm. day, you saw each company that came along kind of make yeah. the same mistakes. Yeah. And, and today in the auto industry, uh, you know, within the last year or two, we've seen a lot of recalls because of battery fire. So yeah. are, are companies making the, the same mistakes that you know, you kind of headed off at the pass uh, back in 05, 06 with, with Tesla. Oh my, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I think uh, when, when I first visited Tesla in 2006, um, people really hadn't thought about thermal runaway and propagation. Not really. I mean, it was kind of a nuisance issue. It sort of happened. It was, always a quality defect, but the, the, the feeling was always that, um, well, you know, if you just make them better, those will go away. Right. And, and the truth is that's true actually. Right. Um, at that time, one in a million cells would, you know, randomly go into thermal runaway just about, um, as the industry advanced, the top cell makers have really pushed that number down. Right. So they've gotten, you know, I started seeing, you know, failure rates that um, at the good cell makers would be like one in 10 million, right? And this was all for, for small cylindrical cells. Um, and then, you know, when I was at Tesla working with the cell manufacturers, we were working very hard to bring those rates even lower, right? So you make cells that are, you know, orders of magnitude better now than you did back in that day, right? Many orders of magnitude better. So, you know, is it, how how much do you assume a thermal runaway reaction is going to happen? The numbers change, but the underlying problem is that, well, you need a lot of energy inside a car to make it go. That means if you're staying with 18650s or 2170s, that means a lot of cells. 
people have a misconception now. They think, okay, well, if I make bigger cells, then my rates will be really low, right? So if I have 100 cells in my car as opposed to 10,000, I shouldn't be at risk. Um, And that's not exactly true, but it's sort of subtle, right? So some things about cells, some faults that you can create tend to be related to things like, you know, you've got a tab in there and you've got welds on the tabs and you might have, um, you know, how the how the cell is stacked or wound inside there and misalignments and so forth that can cause problems. And that will be a per cell failure rate. Okay. And then your analysis is correct. But there's also failures that have to do with really just the amount of electrode that you have in a cell. So you you kind of count it as how many defects per, you know, square meter of electrode. And it's a tiny little defect that could cause a problem. And it doesn't care if it's in a small cell or a big cell. It's still one tiny little defect will cause a problem. Then you have to kind of convert your failure rate to, you know, not a failure rate per cell, but a failure rate per kilowatt hour or per, you know, square meter of electrode. That remains appreciable. So I think there's some underestimating of potential failure rates that's happening. But it's, you know, it's coming from a somewhat different place. It's, it's, uh, there is um, understanding that thermal runaway happens and that propagation is a problem. But I think people haven't really sorted out what that expected rate is or what's the best that they can hope for with real manufacturing problems. So that's going to be something that I think people will be debating for a while and, and trying to find their way through. I'm curious a little bit, you know, you mentioned, you know, you can, you can splice this problem up in different ways, but generally speaking, if you're making a cell more energy dense, are you also increasing the risk of propagation or do those two things have to work in correlation with each other or, or, or are there ways to add energy and be uh, safer at the same time? Yeah, um, there are ways to add energy and be safer at the same time. Um, and what you've actually seen in cells is, you know, a continuing step toward increased safety. All right. You can really mess up a cell by just shoving more energy into it. Okay. Um, if you uh, if you don't fully understand the tolerances that you've got that you can hold in the factory and you just decide that okay, I'm going to thin out the separator and it'll be fine. Or I'm going to, you know, assume a tighter alignment of anode to cathode than than my equipment can realistically achieve. You're going to end up with a lot of fires, right? If you just shove energy in there. However, if you're saying, okay, I'm going to find, uh, I'm going to develop tools that are better at aligning my stacks or aligning my windings. And so my alignment's always going to be better. Um, so I can go to a tighter alignment and then I can sho- effectively shove more energy into the cell. You will end up with more energy density and better safety, right? Same thing with separators. Those have been evolving over the last um, 25 years substantially. Okay. So a separator, you know, from the early 2000s and a separator that you can a- achieve now, um, the current separator is way better. Okay, it has way more impressive puncture resistance, way better oxidation resistance, way better shutdown behavior, right? So there's been all these advances that have been rolling in. And as a consumer, we don't see that. We see 
there's a cell, it's a certain size. People say, well, it's a cylindrical cell or it's a pouch cell or it's an 18650 or something. That's just the cell. And it, it's like, yeah, that's the form factor. The chemistry in there has been changing. The the design in, inside there has been changing constantly from uh, the time when these were commercialized. And, you know, most people don't see that. Um, there's usually not a lot of fanfare because these sort of things are not a consumer product directly. They go into something. But um, but there has been just, you know, tremendous uh, technical development in the industry over the last 25 years. So thinking about some of those technical developments and chemistry developments, that's a perfect segue into to asking you about what are you doing at Lighten these days and what makes uh, what makes your work uh, unique and standing out? Okay, so Lighten is trying a very, very difficult chemistry, um, lithium sulfur. This is, you know, it's a well-known chemistry. Everyone in electrochemistry knows about lithium and sulfur. Should give us great energy density if you can make a practical cell out of it. It's um, it's very different from conventional lithium ion. What happens with a lithium sulfur cell is that you start at the top of charge with solid sulfur, and then as you discharge it, it forms these kind of long chain polysulfides that are actually a liquid. And then at the end of discharge, there's a precipitation reaction of lithium sulfide, right? So you go from solid to liquid to solid, all to the space of one discharge. And then when you charge it up, you go right back through there, right? So uh, this is kind of mind blowing. Um, Obviously, if you've got a liquid and you've got a liquid electrolyte, you've kind of got an issue that, well, okay, you've got two liquids and what are they going to do together? Um, it turns out, uh, you know, if you just try this without something to hold on to the sulfur, um, you know, the sulfur will dissolve in the electrolyte and, you know, while you discharge and then it'll migrate over to the anode and it'll coat the anode and it's very insulating and your cell will stop nothing, you know, it all stops because it all reacts. Um, so that's, that's not so good. Um, so what do you do with lithium sulfur? Well, people have been trying this for a long time. Can you control the sulfur? Can you keep it separate from the anode in a um, practical way? Um, so that you, you can go through these reactions and get the nice energy density and, you know, still have a working cell. Yeah. It's been something that people have been trying for quite some time. Lighten came along um, and was doing uh, development of graphene, particularly 3D graphenes that are formed by cracking methane. So the, the raw material is methane. And then uh, in our reactors, it gets cracked and you get hydrogen gas and then you get carbon structures, which we can tune our reactors to make those structures in all kinds of different ways, including a graphene and what we call a 3D graphene. So we can get all kinds of different structures there. And a while ago, uh, you know, the group was looking at this and saying, well, what do we do with these 3D graphenes? What do we, what can we, what can we do? Um, and uh, they tried some things. Okay. They tried some um, adding these as a component to a polymer, right? It lightweights the polymer beautifully, right? And it adds all kinds of strength and so forth. So that's cool. Um, and they were doing some work with some uh, various potential customers. And someone said, you know, uh, if you get the right shape there, you can hold on to sulfur. You could cage sulfur. And then you could make a lithium sulfur cell, which is kind of really the holy grail. Because the thing about sulfur is um, it's cheap. It's abundant. 
and not, uh, not in China or, it's or not, it is, well, it's, it's, else. it's everywhere. Right. And, uh, you know, if you can make a practical lithium sulfur cell that changes the industry. Right. So, you know, the, the founders looked at this and said, all right, uh, we should try that. And they started doing development of batteries and they got some, uh, encouraging results and, uh, kept doing the development. And then, you know, I joined about six, seven months ago, right. And said, okay, where, where are we at? Well, we still have some development to go, but it looks kind of promising. Okay. Technology it's going to have, we're going to be in development for a while. It's going to, it's going to take a while to sort all this out because when you do a cell, you know, you can end up with a great cathode, but you have to match the anode, the separator, the electrolyte system to that. Um, so you, you don't usually just create one killer component, right? You you have to do the whole cell design. Um, and there's lots of challenges with lithium sulfur. After you get the cathode where it's working pretty well, then you have to fix everything else. And then you keep coming back and forth, right? So we're, we're on a development pathway. But we're getting uh, good results that look like we could make, you know, practical cells by the end of the year that people might actually want to buy. Not for cars, but for other applications. And, you know, and you say, well, why, why do you want to mess with this? Well, it's because there's not really that much nickel in the world. You know, forget about where it might be sitting. There's just not that much of it. So if you want to talk about how do I electrify everything? Okay. And not just some very fancy EVs, but, you know, EVs for everyone and stationary systems around the world. And not just, you know, for wealthy nations, but everywhere. Um, the reality is you don't have enough nickel in the world to do that. Okay. So at that point you say, okay, well, nickel's great. And I mean, you know, I, I ride around on high nickel cells. Okay. I have a Model S. Uh, I love the car. Right. But it's not, there's not enough for everyone. And then you say, okay, what do I do next? Well, LFP is on the market, Right. Seeing a lot of that That's, now, for sure. Yeah, everyone's excited about LFP. The, the trouble with LFP is that the energy density on it is not that great, right? So, you know, you can make lower range things. LFP has a lot of great performance parameters to it, but it's kind of okay, right? The thing about sulfur is, theoretically, you can have amazing energy densities, right? Amazing ones. Like gravimetrically twice what a conventional lithium ion cell can give you right now, right? So that says, wow, you know, you could put lithium sulfur into cars and, you know, you wouldn't be like compromising on range, okay? This is, you know, this gets, this gets really exciting. And then on top of it, sulfur is really cheap, right? So not only do you have enough of it, but you bring the cost down substantially, right? So, wow, um, this is, you know, this is, there's a lot of motivation to do this because what it means if we can get lithium sulfur working is it's a pathway to electrify everything. We're going to take a short break from my conversation with Selena. When we return, she'll talk more about her time at Tesla and the point in her career where she literally started dreaming about lithium ion battery cells. This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation a global technology company that supplies nearly every major automaker with advanced electronic features that optimize driver vision and enhance driving safety. Digital vision features like Gentech's full display mirror 
an intelligent rear vision system that uses a custom camera and mirror integrated video display to optimize a vehicle's rearward view. Connected car features like Homelink, the industry's most widely used and trusted vehicle-based wireless control system that uses radio frequency and or cloud-based wireless control to operate garage doors, gates, home lighting, thermostats, security systems, and other compatible home automation devices. All from three buttons, smartly integrated into your vehicle's interior. And dimmable glass features like automatic dimming rearview mirrors that use sophisticated light sensors, proprietary gels, and microprocessor-based algorithms to darken the mirror to the precise level necessary to eliminate dangerous rearview mirror glare. The development and delivery of these features have improved driver convenience and safety around the world. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Now back to my conversation with Light and Chief Battery Technology Officer, Selena Mikowajic. Do you think with conventional lithium ion, uh, you know, like we talked about earlier, like you've been on this path for, for your career. Um, do you feel like the electrification of everything is inevitable at this point or, or be it chemistry, availability of raw materials, charging infrastructure, you name it, can, can this all still fall apart or be derailed in some way? Um, I think it's inevitable. It's just a question of time and length of time, because, you know, once you drive an electric car, it's just so much better. Okay. I know, you know, it's just so much better. And, you know, the, the realities of climate change are such that we have to do some different things. Okay. Um, you get so much better energy efficiency with a battery than you do with an individual internal combustion engine everywhere that it, it's just incredibly better for the environment um, it's an infinitely better user experience. Um, the The other realities are, you know, electricity can be generated with solar panels and, and batteries everywhere. You don't need the huge infrastructure. So when you look at the world's population and you say, you know, I, I want to bring um, electricity out to remote areas where, you know, people have not had it before, dropping solar panels and battery packs is a heck of a lot easier than running a whole lot of copper power lines there and building power plants, right? So this is this is something that I think the world's going to demand, and you know electrification is is just the way to go for all of this. And and it's not again, it doesn't compromise. You get a car that's better. You get you know if you put a power wall in your house, and you know my my husband's a big fan of having power. And uh, yeah, so he he decided we're gonna have some power walls and solar. You know, the power flips off, we don't even notice. He's so happy, right? He's so well, happy. In California, I imagine that uh, yeah. you're you're experiencing this from time to time, or yeah, or, or not noticing that it's switching, but but in fact, yeah. it is. Yeah, you know, and once you do that, you realize, wow, I still have power, and it's so, uh, you know, just appealing. Right. I, I can't see that people are going to be like, nah, not interested. It's like, no, come on. 
So when you think about what you're doing at Lighten in, in terms of kind of bringing that potential to, to a widespread market, it's great when you have a game-changing technology. Uh, can you manufacture these lithium sulfur cells? And is that is that uh, kind of a key challenge here? Because that that often can be in when it comes oh. to batteries, oh. as you oh, yeah. know. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of manufacturing challenges. I mean, even a conventional lithium ion cell is so hard to make. You have no idea. It is uh, people are like, oh, we're going to make our own cells, and I'm like, oh, good luck with that, <laughs> right? It's um, it's very difficult. And then you add a new chemistry and new development. That's really hard. Um, you do have to give yourself some time for manufacturing development. You have to have a plan for it, um, and you do need a chemistry that's going to give you. Um, uh, kind of a a window of manufacturability that's reasonable. Uh, one of the things we are very um, excited about with our graphene um, technology is that um, when we make a, um, our cathode material, um, it can, uh, once we produce it, it can be handled pretty much like any other cathode material. So, it becomes it's a it's a black powder at that point that you can throw into a mixer, mix it um, with our system because it's a lower voltage system. Uh, you don't have to use solvents; you can use straight water, right? So you don't have to have a fancy solvent system with recovery. Uh, so it's a water based um, coating system, and you can coat it on uh, typical coaters that you use in the industry. There's nothing fancy about that, um, and you can manage it in the same way. So that's one of the big exciting things about lithium sulfur is that um, it's not uh, once you get the 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 right cathode material together, those processes aren't really different, and there's nothing uh, profoundly slow about making the graphene and the sulfur composites that we make. That that cathode, um, we have to scale it up, but it's not that bad. And then, you know, our cells, they work, right? They work. There's not a lot of really strange surprises. They're not particularly fussy, um, which is great. Uh, that means we have some room for manufacturing capability. Um, we are able to make uh, pouch cells and we're able to make cylindrical cells, which is also different than a lot of um, startups. You know, there's there's a lot of technologies out there where um, you can't wind the the electrodes. You make flat pouches. Great technologies, um, very manufacturable. There's a lot of uh, systems that use um, pouch cells. Your laptop's pouch cell. A number of the um, automakers use uh, large pouch cells. Uh, but cylindrical cells are very very fast to manufacture. You can wind a cell a lot faster than you can stack a cell, right? So if you start looking at throughput and, you know, how many kilowatt hours can you actually shove through a factory, right? Cylindrical cells still have, I think, a substantial advantage. So again, if you're talking about, I want to electrify everything, um, that means, you know, you've got to build a bunch of factories and throughput becomes a question. And you say, well, do I do it as a stacked pouch? And and you do a calculation and you say, well, you know, if I'm going to have the same gigawatt hour throughput, my pouches have to be bigger. 
Okay, that will come with certain reliability penalties on the final product. How good are you at your manufacturing? That becomes the question, right? If you're really good, your reliability will be fine. If you're just starting out, like a new entrant and a new technology, you might want to start smaller, right? It's it's a little more realistic. And you say, well, you know, if I'm going to start with small cells, I'm, I'm just going to have a little bit more margin for error. And, and um, I can develop my manufacturing capability to the point where maybe, uh, you know, at a later date, I go to, from larger to larger form factors. I'm curious, there was a point, I think, early on in your career at Tesla, where you said you were literally dreaming about lithium ion cells at night. Uh, and I'm curious, are you at a point now where you're dreaming of lithium sulfur cells uh, at night at Lighten? I don't know. I think I dream about cells like continuously. <laughs> so I, I became okay with it when I was at Tesla. I was like, at first I was really disturbed. I'm like, damn, I dreamt about cells. Uh, <laughs> I must be very strange. And then I went, and then I thought about it. I said, oh, okay. And I think it's been continuous. I dream about cells and battery packs and manufacturing equipment. I'm curious, like, obviously you, you played a central role in, in what Tesla is today. Um, if you just reflect back a little bit, when you think of, about your time at Tesla uh, and you look in the rearview mirror a bit, what is it that you think about that uh, that most represents your time there? Well, a lot of us played central roles. You know, doing a new car like that, a completely new approach, um, all that technology, there were so many people there that were breaking ground, Okay working incredible hours and dreaming about their own individual area, right? I was dreaming about cells. Uh, colleagues were dreaming about module design and pack design and, and other guys were doing powertrains. Um, all of us were vaguely nuts, okay? I mean, deeply passionate about the work we were doing um, and being incredibly intense about it, okay? One thing about being at Tesla was it was never comfortable. There was always some something new to achieve, and it was grueling hard work. There's no two ways around that. Um, you know, these were not forty hour days or forty hour weeks. They they sometimes maybe, felt maybe like they were forty hour days. <laughs> they might have felt like forty hour days. And you know, there's a there's a few times colleagues slept under their desks, right? You know, and and did this, and it wasn't you know it it was not um, uh, singularly any one person. So it was a huge effort, but you know, that's what you can achieve when you have a very clear mission. Um, and you bring engineers together and you say, okay, we're going to go do this thing. It's going to be groundbreaking. Um, and it's going to be really hard. Who wants to play? <laughs> Who wants to come and join the, join the party? Um, and, uh, you can achieve some amazing things. But you know, it's it's not uh, it's never comfortable, right? It's 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 hard, uh, you know. And that's why, like, when I look at like lithium sulfur, this is a difficult chemistry, and you know, it's difficult technical development, and it's very daunting. And then that's just the technical development. Then you think about okay, now I'm going to scale manufacturing. What's that going to require? And you know, I've kind of been there. And seeing what that requires, and and I know just how high that mountain is that we've got to climb. It is so terrifying 
I mean, terrifying. But at the same time, the thing I take away from Tesla was that is that when I started at Tesla, there was this huge hill to climb and it was terrifying. (laughs) Or maybe it was less terrifying because I didn't know how big it was, right? But you realize, okay, you can achieve that, okay? It it is possible if you take it um, very seriously as a mission and you, you know, bring a bunch of people on board that are going to work collaboratively and do this thing, you can achieve that. It's not impossible. And that's, I think that's something that um, uh, people are afraid sometimes. They're daunted by these engineering challenges. And and they aren't just engineering challenges. You work them and you work them and you keep going and you'll get there. That's, uh, I think that's kind of the, the biggest takeaway that I get. And maybe last question for you, thinking about that, you can see, be it you at Lighten or J.B. Straubel at Redwood Materials or or so many others who have gone on from Tesla, uh, you can see how that, not just that talent, but the that mindset in, has, has shaped everything going on in the industry today, I think. I think so. I think we all share like sheer stubbornness that we're going to going to do this thing and we're going to make it work. And yeah, you see where the, you know, various Tesla alumni have landed and they are trying very difficult things and they're being remarkably successful because they just know it's going to be really hard. They're going to keep falling down. They're going to keep getting up and, and just keep moving forward. Selena, it's been great having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks Pete. Lovely chatting with you. All right. After we wrapped up, Selena was kind enough to say that she would love to come back on the podcast for round two. So we will have to schedule that soon. I can't wait. Uh, But alas, that is it for today. If you enjoyed this episode and you like the Shift podcast overall, please leave us a review or subscribe at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to Selena for her time. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. 